The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and the Bonhoeffer Project, led by Bill Hull, hosted a track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Bill Hull and his co-author, Ben Sobels, have written a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Since it's a discipleship.org resource, we've made available for free the primer for this book. The premise of the book is that many people try to make disciples without first making sure that people believe the right gospel, one that leads to discipleship. It's called Upstream Theology, according to the authors. This is the discipleship gospel, which is really the gospel that Jesus preached. In their book, they clearly lay out the gospel that Jesus preached according to scripture and how you can teach this gospel that leads to discipleship. Download the primer for this book at discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel for your free primer. Now here's today's track session from the Bonhoeffer Project. All right. Uh, I want us to turn to John 17. And when I say John 17, what, what comes to your head? What's the slide in your head? The high priestly prayer. Many of our Bibles have that over the top of the chapter. Where is Jesus? Do we know where he is? They've left. He and the 11 have left the, the upper room. They're making their way over to the Mount of Olives. And somewhere in between, as they are going over, uh, through the Kidron Valley, he has a prayer. And this is really what some people call the real Lord's Prayer. Yeah. It's his heartbeat. And he, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but I came upon this a couple of years ago. There are at least nine characteristics of a disciple maker in this one chapter. And I never saw that before just a couple of years ago. But I want us to look at just a few verses as we launch this particular a workshop on, uh, on what is the Bonhoeffer Project. As you know, he says this is eternal life in verse 3. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you. And that's not just mental assent. It's an experiential relationship with God. To know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent on earth, uh, to earth. Now watch this, verse 4. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Question is, what was he referring to? What was the work that the father had sent him to accomplish that he had already completed? And obviously in this context, in this, in this forum, I would hope that some of you would say, uh, making disciples. Now, were they perfect? Uh, no, they still uh, were they were they completely faithful to him from that moment on? Well, we re we know that the answer to that. But his but his primary task as he's making this prayer is that he's accomplished all that the father had given him to do. Now, Let's look at the context, because when I went to Bible college, one of the mantras was context is king. OK, so let's look at verse six. Go down a couple verses. He says, I have revealed you. Some of your translations say what? Manifested you to the ones you gave me from this world as he was living and training 
And in community with those, those 12 men, he was revealing the Father. Yes? He is our model for discipleship, for, for the Christian life. He revealed the Father. And then in addition to that, in verse 8, he says, For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. Some of your translations say you, they, he is what? Given, given them his word. So he not only passed on the word to them of the Father, but he also revealed the Father to them through his life. Brothers and sisters, that's a beautiful, a beautiful example of what we are to become as, as disciples. And so the Bonhoeffer Project is is a movement to allow you to come in, as Jordan said, into a small community of disciples, other disciples in a cohort. And then we walk you through a series of experiences and, and, uh, and teachings that allow you to become more like Jesus as a disciple-making leader. So this time of the afternoon, I know that it can be a little dreary. And so I want to, I want to give you a, a mental experiment here, all right? I, I'm going to put an image up on the screen in just a moment. And I want you to tell me, and I'll give you about 60 to 90 seconds. I'll just kind of watch how you're doing. I want you to tell me how many squares do you see in this image? And I don't want you to say anything out loud. Please, you can, you can use your, your pen or your pencil on a piece of paper if you want to, but I want to know how many squares do you see in that figure, okay? And I will uh, time it, and I'll come back to you in about a minute. All right, now, if you have already experienced this, this exercise, would you be so kind as to allow them to experience it like you did the first time, okay? So... Somebody tell me how many squares you see in this figure. 28. All right, 20. Let me write these down real quick. 28, okay. 21. 22. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. 30. Anybody else want to take a shot at it? Zero. <laughs> all right. Now, I think all of us would, would say that we see at least 16, correct? Yeah. All right. Now, where do we go from here? All right, there's another one, right? Now, some people might stop right here and say that I see 16 squares. And, and that would be, they do see 16 squares, but you kind of come to a barrier and then you think, wait a minute, there's a deeper insight here and there is 17. Now, who said 17? Okay. Why do you think the rest of them said that there were more? Was it because there? Because I thought the TV screen, but that's a rectangle. Oh. <laughs> 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 All right. 
Well, brothers and sisters, we need to go a little bit deeper than just the 17 because on this image, there was another square. Okay, there's 18. And if there's 18, there has to be? And then there has to be? All right, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. So did anybody say, who said 26? Super, super. Well, for those of you that thought that it was, there were more, where do we go from here? Oh, okay. So we can, we can take three by three. And so that's 27, 28, 29. Who said 30? Bingo. Now we do have some people in the congregation that uh, they always like to inflate the numbers, you know, <laughs> and they said 32, but I've, uh, I've tried to find 31 or 32 and I don't know where they are. But that's why, that's why I showed these in colors so we could count them and make sure that we didn't miss anything. Now, why, why would I show you this? Because I think that the Bonhoeffer Project, and I've never heard this term before, but I think if you go through the Bonhoeffer Project, it is a divine discovery. Have you ever been reading the Bible thinking you know everything there is about that passage? And all of a sudden, whether it's in your own study or you're listening to a pastor or a Bible teacher and you say to yourself, I didn't I didn't even see that before. You know what you just did? You just discovered another square of, of God's truth that previously you weren't, you weren't aware of. You just didn't see it. Uh, a Greek philosopher said almost 2,000 years ago, it's impossible for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. That's why for those of us who are pastors, what's the most difficult sermon of the year? Easter. Can I hear anybody else? <laughs> I'd say Christmas because uh, many in our culture don't don't know about the true message of Easter. But everybody thinks most people think they know about Christmas. And so they already know where we're where what where, where we're going. Correct. They know where we're going to go. So they kind of they kind of put you uh, you know, on auto, themselves on autopilot, or they'll change the channel on you, even though they're nodding their head. They're not really listening. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I have, for years, I've attempted to follow Jesus now for 44 years. And I thought I knew everything there was about the story of Zacchaeus. Y'all are pretty familiar with that one, right? Until I heard a man who was taught in a rabbinic, rabbinic school. If I were to ask you, why did, why did Zacchaeus climb the tree? You would say? Short. He was short. And he, he was. Have you ever been to a parade? Aren't there short people on the ground at a parade? Where are they usually? They're in the, in the, they're in the front. 
why didn't Zacchaeus go to the front of the, the crowd in the parade when Jesus walked through Jericho? I'm sorry? He didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be seen? That's, that's a possibility. <clears throat> what, what profession did he have? He was a tax collector. He handled what? What kind of money? Was that clean? Not to a Jew. They would not allow that man, apparently, to get near them because he was unclean. And if they got unclean, then the dominoes began to fall. And I thought, I, 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 never, I never realized that because I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I, I, I forgot about the whole, the whole holiness issue of being unclean. And so what I'm saying is that in Scripture, many times we, we think we've seen all the truth there is, but the reality is there's probably another square. And my, my goal is, before the Lord uh, graduates me, uh, I, want, I want to discover as many squares to his Scriptures as I possibly can. Do you, do, are you with me? If I could describe the Bonhoeffer Project... I would say it this way. When I came into the project, I thought I knew the gospel. And if you've been with us in any of these sessions, you know, hopefully you've seen some things that you believe, but you just didn't notice them before. And so uh, when I entered into this, this project some 40 years after I began my attempt to follow Jesus, I, I thought the plan of salvation was the gospel. But then I came to realize that the gospel had been hijacked. I believe it was Scott McKnight said it that way. It's been hijacked by the plan, by the plan of salvation. And so I learned that the gospel that I believe naturally led to and determined the, the, the message that I proclaimed. Did you hear me? The gospel that, that I believed had specific implications and consequences to the gospel that I proclaimed, to the kind of disciple that I am, to the theology that I, that I teach, to the, to the way I, the life that I, that I live, and the legacy that I will leave. It all has implications because of the gospel. And, I, and so when we do this discipleship river image, we talk about every, every river has a source, and it's at that source that makes the difference because if there's any contaminants in that river at the source, it's going to affect the entire river and the entire process of making disciples. And so I found out in the midst of the Bonhoeffer Project that all who are called to salvation are also called to, to a life of discipleship. And I don't know how the people in your church would respond if they heard you say that. And regardless of whether you're a pastor or not, in, in some kind of context, in a, in a small group, if you said that, that clearly, that all who are called to salvation are also called to follow Jesus as a disciple, I wonder what the response would be. And I can tell you this with complete honesty. Now, as I read the Bible, I see it through different lenses. And even 
in, in the book of Revelation, as I'm reading the letters to the churches, I see this reality in those letters from the lips of Jesus. It's, he's not talking about just knowing about him. He's talking about being faithful to him and living out the truth in allegiance to him as our king. And so that's probably the, the biggest discovery. I was probably stuck at, uh, I don't know, maybe square, maybe I was only at squares 16, and then I needed to jump to 17, or somewhere between there and 30, because I've got a long way to go. And I, I came to realize that the Western church has produced generations of what uh, Dallas Willard called barcode Christians. And I, I use this as illustration all over the world when I, when I teach our, our national leaders in other countries. And, and here's what I do. I, uh, I'll take a, a, a bottle of water with obviously a barcode on it and I'll ask them, do you all know what this image is? And they do. They do. Now, not every, every store along, uh, village store along the street has, has a scanner, but if they go to a supermarket, they know what it means. And so if I were to take this bottle of water and place it, take it to the cashier, and he or she scans it, what will come up on the register? The price and, and the product, correct? Yeah. It'll, it'll name the, the product, and it'll also name the price. <coughs> And so I, I put it down and I'll say, now this bottle happens to be empty. But what would happen if I walked into the store and I went up to the cashier and he passes it across the scanner, what will come up on the, it will say exactly the same thing because it only reads what's on the, on the, on the surface or on the outside. And then I will take a bottle that is dirty water, which is quite common in the cultures that I go to. And I walk through the same illustration and they say what you're going to say. It will say exactly what it said the first time. And so this forgiveness only gospel that we learn about in the in the Bonhoeffer Project, or as, as Bill's referred to it again today as the Gospel Americana, it says that we can pray a prayer, raise our hand, and get our ticket to a life beyond this life, the assurance of getting in there, but we can live our lives from that moment on without any sign of any kind of transformation. It, you see, just that prayer doesn't necessarily, and we don't know if we mean it until we see the what? The, the fruit of it. And so the prayer is important. The decision is essential, yes. But what, ha what did you say yes to? Everywhere I go, and I, and I share this illustration, there is this light that comes on, and I sense that they, they, they've, just, they've just grasped another square of truth, that it's not simply about saying yes to knowing and, and recognizing the name Jesus, but it's also following him.
And so many times in the church, in, in, in fact, I'm ashamed to say that even the, the tribe that, that I belong to, there's many times when people come to a Methodist church from other areas of the country because of the label. And when they come in, they, they'll, they'll kind of tilt their head and then they'll come up to you and say, uh, I, I've not heard this before. Or worse, this is not what I signed up for. I don't know if, that, if you can relate to that in your, your specific traditions and experiences. But I came to believe in, in the, the Bonhoeffer Project and I came to realize that for years we here especially have been producing barcode Christians that we say the prayer, we get the barcode, and then every time we walk in, we get scanned in church, we get scanned, we're, we're okay. But we don't, we don't realize that perhaps we've never had the, the, the transformation of the Holy Spirit, and perhaps nobody showed us what it really means to follow Jesus. So that's another experience that I've had in the Bonhoeffer Project. I came to realize that faith in Jesus equals faith in following him, in allegiance, devotion, loyalty, and in obedience. Uh, I like to say it this way. A disciple is one who is following Jesus in, a, in, a, in allegiance to his claims. And who did he claim to be? He's, he's the Christ. He's the king. Yes, he didn't come out of the gate saying that. But we know from the gospel account that he did, he did own up to being the Christ and the king. So we, we, we follow him in allegiance. His, his relationship is higher than any other relationship we'll ever have. And then we, we walk in obedience to his teachings. Uh, in the last session, if you were here, we were talking about... Uh, Salvation by discipleship alone. And I, and I love that title because it, it makes us think, now what, what, it, what does salvation really mean? And as I was thinking about how you might be thinking about that, I thought, where does love fit in? Now, didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll obey me. He says that a, a couple of times. And then we, we talked about the word grace. It's by grace that we've been saved, right? It's God's grace. It's the faith that we've entrusted in him. But I've come to realize that many people that I have had the privilege of influencing as a pastor and, be, and being responsible for, their understanding of grace is that it's only concerning guilt and the the erasing away of guilt, but it doesn't have anything to do with my life now. Well, brothers and sisters, let me take you to just one verse that I think will, will help you communicate this to, to the people around you and hopefully help them see another square of truth. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And in that great chapter, as Paul starts out about that which is of first importance, as we move on down after all those who have witnessed him, 
in the, in the flesh after his, after his resurrection, he says in verse 10, But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his, his what? His grace, charas, that grace. God poured out that grace and not on me and not without results. For I have, and what does he say there? I've worked harder. <laughs> I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. And yet it really wasn't just me and my own strength, but whom? God was working through me by his grace. I think this is one of the clearest verses that we can, we can share that reminds people grace is not only for our entrance into the, uh, how did you say it, uh, Brandon? Not just into the party. Not only to the threshold, but into the party and enjoying the banquet that's there. Grace, grace brings us in, yes, but how, how can we live the Christian life? The, the, how can we follow Jesus without grace? Are you with me? We've, we've somehow, we've, we've cheapened grace and, and it's, it's, we get this ticket. Now, let me ask you this. To just using common sense, let's say we're talking about one of these one of these barcode Christians. Why? And I've got my ticket. So when I take my last breath, I'm going to go to heaven. Right. Why would I want to spend eternity, which I understand is a pretty long time. Why would I want to spend eternity with a God that I'm not comfortable with? or have any desire to spend any time with him now. That would be hell for that type of person. You see the reasoning there? Uh, I think I've shared this already, but uh, as one pastor said, I came to realize years ago that I hadn't given Jesus my life. I'd given him my afterlife but not my now life. And, and I, I'm telling you, this experience of walking through a cohort with a, with a group of, of brothers, in, in my case, uh, allowed me to see more, more squares, deeper insights into God's word, into his, his plan for me that I, that I didn't know existed. I came to realize that since Jesus lived for others, that the church is only his church when it exists for other people, right? And, and discipleship to Jesus is indeed discipleship uh, for others. It's not only about, this is one of the insights that was made clear to me, that discipleship is simply not just about me and Jesus and how I'm doing with him, but the, the discipleship question is, how am I doing loving and serving the people that God has already brought into my life? And that's, that's a tougher question. That's a discipleship question. And that was a deeper square, another square of truth that I didn't know existed. Even as a pastor, I wasn't aware of that until I encountered this experience. I realized that our churches exist for making disciples. 
And those disciples are God's delivery system or couriers who carry the message, the gift of the gospel to the world. Uh, Bill used an illustration earlier uh, in this weekend or the end of the week here. And he said, imagine the United Parcel Service. If they required us to go to the distribution center or the hub to get our packages. I mean, that sounds absurd, doesn't it? You know, they will, <clears throat> they will take them off the brown trucks, put them in, in, in location uh, bins, and then we come by the warehouse and we find the bin where our packages are. I don't think I would use Amazon Prime if that was the case. Last time I checked, it comes right to my door. In fact, they've even enlisted the, the U.S. Postal Service to do that for me. I want to, but yet in the church, we're telling the world to come to the distribution center, the church, aren't we? We're telling them to come to us to hear the good news. But really what we should be doing is sending all of our people out as, as couriers who have been equipped with the, miss the message and the gift of the gospel so that they could take it to their respective areas. Uh, my wife and I uh, just moved up, as Bill said, from, from Florida to a, a place about 30 minutes north of here. And <clears throat> through a long search over about a year, uh, we found a new community that was being built. Because at our stage of life, we didn't want to buy a fixer-upper, and so we found a, a new development. We happened to be the first house that was completed on the, on the street. So I live in a construction zone, literally. But I said to my wife, I said, honey, uh, the reality is we get to set the welcome culture for the street. We're here first. And so uh, my wife, as Bill said, her, her primary gift is hospitality. So she went down to, uh, to Target and, and she got some, some gifts that we wished we would have had available to us when we moved right into the house because everything's in what? Boxes. Everything's in boxes. And you can't remember what you did with this. So not only do we have practical things like the little roll that you need when you, you, go, you go into the bathroom in your new house and wait a minute, where is that? What, what box is that in? So we do everything practical like that to, to some chocolate and a, and a bottle with some some delicious uh, beverage in it. And we just leave them a little card and we tell them, we're thrilled that you're here. Welcome to the neighborhood. Now, I've never had that privilege before because I moved into a parsonage and they already knew that the preacher lived in that house. <laughs> and the welcome wasn't all that great uh, for me. So we're being sent out into the world to, to deliver the gift of the gospel. But we got to make sure we're, we're, we're giving them the, the pure kingdom gospel. So in, in light of that illustration, it reminded me of something that, that uh, I've learned along the way, especially in other cultures. Now, I want to show you an image. Can you all see what this is right here? Yeah. Um, this is an airport. All right. Now, what do you think the purpose of that facility is? My words are important. What's the purpose of the facility? To send people out? To send people out? 
Okay, anybody else want to share what the building's for? Get people on airplanes. To get them on airplanes so that they can go where? To their destination. To their destination, yeah. Now, we could, we could add to that, but I think these brothers are pretty, pretty straightforward. Let's imagine that these five people on the front row are the, are the board of trustees for this airport. And they've decided that the measure of success is that all the planes are on the ground, all the concourses are filled with people, all the restaurants are filled, all the corridors are filled, and everywhere you see people standing around and seated is a sign of their success. What should we do with these board of trustees? Yeah, we, we ought to fire them, right? Because that's not the purpose at all of an airport. The purpose of an airport is to get people off the ground to prepare them to get to the right destination and to get them off the ground to their destination. So, you with me so far? What is the purpose of that facility? They come in all shapes and sizes, but I swallowed the pill years ago that said the sign of success was how many people were able to get into that building and listen to what I had to say along the way. But you and I know that that building is simply a facility where we can train and equip and encourage people on how to get to where? Their destination. Jesus said, I am the way, you know, and to our ultimate destination to be with God. Now, uh, I came across a very unique airline when I was in India. This is the captain. His last name is Gupta. He's sitting in the cockpit of his A300 uh, plane. His wife is also, uh, she's one of the co-pilots, and she is, they, they have a special, uh, special rate, apparently, for kids and families. And so they, they really cater to kids. They even let them take part in the safety uh, demonstrations. And then they, they feed them along the way. They let them watch movies. And they have a unique way when they get to their destination, to how to get off the plane. Wouldn't you, as a kid, you'd love to get off a plane that way? You know, there's, there's just one, one issue with this airline. <laughs> it looks like an airplane. They have activities like you're on an airplane. The food and the, and, the, and the care inside make you feel like you're in an airplane, but it doesn't go anywhere. Are, are you with me? How many of our churches promise that just by coming to us, we're going to take them somewhere? And we're really like this. This hit me hard. When I was sharing these images to a church in South America, I had, you know how 
you'll speak to someone that you've never met before, but the Holy Spirit's been there before you and kind of prepared the soil. These two senior pastors came to me after the, uh, after the message and through a translator told me that somehow the Holy Spirit had revealed to them that their church was to be like an airport of, of sending people out rather than being accumulating people. I had no idea. So, the Bonhoeffer Project helped me clarify the reason that Jesus called us in the first place. It was to equip us to send us out with that incredible gift of the gospel. Now, I've talked a little bit about what the Bonhoeffer Project is. Let, let me talk about what it is not. And before I share my, my answers, what would you say, and I even invite our, our brothers and sisters in the, in the balcony back there, uh, what would you say the, the Bonhoeffer Project is not? It is not a what? Okay, it's not, a, it's not a church growth seminar, no. You're absolutely right. It's not, it's not just a, a collection of methods. All right, let me, let me share some with you. It is, it is not a timely program, but it is a transforming process. It's a transforming process. And let me just say that it does not happen in a year or two or perhaps even three. It may take longer than that for the culture to be changed. And, and as Brandon has shared, culture is changed by language, by sharing stories, by sharing experiences. It's also not a cookie cutter package. It's a customized product that you develop. What's very unique about the Bonhoeffer Project is this, that you, yeah, I got it, that you are the designer as you work together through the process, you get to design specifically for your ministry context what your plan will be, what your disciple-making plan will be. It's, it's not cookie cutter, and it's not a plug-and-play device. It's personally designed for your ministry context. I say it this way. We give you the essential. We make you aware of the essential building materials. But you and your leadership place those materials into a process and a, a plan that is unique to your culture as a, as a church. Okay? It's also not a quick fix for failing attendance, as we heard earlier. It's a slow and steady cultural change leading to lasting and exponential growth, okay? And it's also not an easy and comfortable formula. It's a challenging and costly endeavor. And what I mean by costly, it's going to take time. It's going to create tension, as perhaps you've been in some of our other, other sessions, you heard that. Some people may say, as I said earlier, I didn't sign up for this. It's not so comfortable here anymore. You're asking me to do something. And can I tell you that in 
and I'll let you apply this to your context. I served in Gainesville, Florida. Our facility, comfortably, you could get 650, 700 in the building. I could not compete with the sanctuary six miles to the east. They seat 95,000. It's called the swamp. It's Florida Field. It's where the Gators play in October or in the fall. And would you believe that there were some people that had a higher allegiance to the Gator Nation than they did to, well, I won't say it, you know. And so it's not a comfortable and formula, but it is a, it's a challenging in Denver, in Denver uh, that you're going to experience. Now, I hope you can see this from the back. Cindy, can you see this? Okay. As we said, it's kind of like a river. The, the, we, every river has a headwaters. We start with the revealed word of God in scripture. Then we understand what the gospel is, okay? The gospel. Do you all remember what happened in uh, 2014 when the mayor of Flint, Michigan, pushed the button that shut off the connection to the, what, their water system from Detroit and the Huron River, uh, the Huron Lake? Do you remember what happened? What happened to their, their water supply in Flint, Michigan? It was contaminated, wasn't it? And that that affected them all through that community. He thought, they thought they were going to save money by using the Flint River rather than Lake Huron. But if it is contaminated upstream, it's going to affect the entire process. And so we have to get back to the kingdom gospel, the truth of the scriptures. And... I want to share these verses with you and share with you how Paul considered a false gospel. He tells the Galatian church, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Is that real today? Absolutely. 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 There, in addition to the five that we mention in our program, there's one that is affecting especially the, the Asian culture. It's called hyper grace. It's very similar to forgiveness only. But, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. There's, there's enough grace. There's no, no sign of repentance or following Jesus. He says, but even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be what? Yeah. Anathema, he says, as we have said before, so I say it again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, it's trouble. It's trouble. And so what we do in the Bonhoeffer Project is we start with the gospel, which is really the why. It's the, the motive, the reason, the purpose of why we make disciples. If, we, if we're not clear here, it's going to be even muddier down the river. And he, here is where we, we pray that the Word of God will transform and renew our minds. We'll get more insights of those squares of truth. 
and then we'll really understand what it means to, to make disciples. Following Jesus in allegiance to his claims and obedience to his teachings. And that's where our heart get gets changed. And then at the end of your 10-month experience, you will have a plan, an actual plan in place to guide your people into a disciple-making culture. And so wherever they encounter out there as they're delivering the, the packages of the gospel, when they come into contact with other people, there'll be a process for them to enter. You know, some of us uh, will go to a, a fitness center and we sign up. And most fitness centers don't really want to talk to us. They just want our monthly donation, right? But imagine sitting down with a counselor, a fitness counselor, and that person asking you, what would you like to, to get out of this membership? What we want to know is, or what we want to have available is, here is what we believe the scriptures are informing us to be as a church, to equip you to become more like Jesus. All right. And that's where we change your behavior and your habits. Now, I'm going to ask the, uh, uh, a couple of my colleagues to come up and, and talk about what it means to be in a cohort. But I want to tell you how important it is that we get these definitions correct. OK. I want to show you. A set of three words. Here they are. And I know it's blurry, but I used the original, so it would be authentic. Dot, Liz, Hero. Does anybody know what those three words mean? All right, I'll give you another one. Duel off, Liz, Slappy. Did that make it clear for you? All right, let me try one more. This, this should do it. I know it's late in the afternoon. Empty K-Rock Bubble Panther. They don't, they don't make sense? You, you're not seeing anything? All right, I'll just give you one more, and I think this might help. Dual Jill Y Seattle Seahawk. All right, what are these, brother? They're, they're football plays. Now, if you're in the huddle, if you're one of the 11 offensive players, and if you're in the huddle like this, and the quarterback says, dual Jill Y, Seattle Seahawk, you have to know whatever your position is, you have to know exactly what you're going to do when the ball is hiked, yes? Otherwise, it's going to what? Chaos. It's going to be chaos and, and, and you're going to fail. But each weekend, and I'm guilty of this as a pastor, each weekend I'm, I'm using terms that may be as unfamiliar as these are to you. And I expect them to execute and they don't understand. Now, whose fault is that? If I'm, if I'm the leader of the church, it's my fault if I haven't taken them and showed them what these mean in clear terms and as a model. As a pastor, I could not disciple everyone in our church. That's not my responsibility. But my responsibility is to model before the church 
a life of a disciple maker and make sure that there was a system, a plan in place so that everybody could be discipled. You ever seen one of those guys? <laughs> That's the play chart that I got a hold of. And those are the plays. These were pass plays on first and 10 and then on second down and three to six yards to go. You know where I found it? I was given a backstage tour while the team was in Dallas, Texas. And I happened to be, this was a pastor friend of mine who had a member in his church that was a part of the, uh, uh, the video uh, association there. And I walked by a, an open door that had that on it. And I saw, <laughs> I saw that, that piece of paper on the table and my eyes just lit up. And I wasn't thinking, oh, I can sell this. That's not where I was going. I thought, wow, could that be used? And so you see it's in uh, this guy's hands. If you're from Tennessee, forgive me for putting this up here. <laughs> but, but every, are you with me? Every player has to understand exactly what I'm supposed to do when the ball is hiked if... If I don't understand those terms, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in the, in the play. The play is, is for not. Okay, I need some guys up here with me. You guys on the front row, come on up. Come on up. And uh, how about you three right here? All right, just kind of huddle around me. I'm the quarterback. All right, you ready? All right, we're huddling up. And what, what am I going to give you? Play. I'm going to give you the play, all right? All right. Make disciples on three. Break. Break. Sure. Now, do you know what to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we do. We, 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 we tell people, we tell people to go do something, but we haven't shown them, right? Uh, maybe that's not in your church, but it was, I, I'm guilty of that, okay? And we have that privilege, especially in a cohort of designing terms and defining terms that make very, very clear what it means to make disciples. So Cindy, if you and Jim would come on up now and would you share with us from your experience, what is it like to be in a cohort? My name's Cindy and I have just um, finished my cohort. I began the cohort a year ago and um, I have been tasked at my church. I'm the spiritual journey pastor at my church. And so I have been tasked by the leadership to keep discipleship at the forefront of the church and make it run. And we had no context for that. It was just, we know we need to do this and, and that's that. So we began our cohort. I began to learn things as, as the process went. The cool part was that I had people to bounce those things off of. And so... Um, when I wasn't sure if it was if I was thinking right or if this piece might work in our context, we're a church of about I guess about 2,000. But but it was an interesting piece because right dead in the middle, uh, we shifted gears as a church, and so I had to tear up what I had started doing and do again. And um, the camaraderie that we had developed in the cohort, uh, these folks helped me to, to pick up those pieces and move it forward and gather the notion of what I was gonna be doing going forward from there. We were able to put together a pretty good plan um, that we're now using. We have rolled it out and are utilizing, actually in our context, we are gonna be doing the primary bulk of our discipleship 
discipleship in uh, the context of small groups. And so we are training our small group leaders and those within their group to disciple and to disciple well. We have a curriculum that we've written that is specific to our church for what we know, knew that our people needed. But, but I can't tell you enough what the difference was in me trying to figure this out on my own. I'm not sure if I had been by myself in my church without these folks with me, if I'd have been able to really walk through that without just being overly discouraged. And so in that, um, the cohort has also helped me because I disciple on multiple levels. We're getting ready to start a women-only cohort, and so we've walked through some of that as well with this group. I lead our, our women's ministry, and so that also has, um, has come up as a topic of conversation. So the cohort is there. You're learning. You're learning all that Denny has talked about today, but more than that, you're learning how to reach for help. And, and learn to get that synergy that happens when you are in a group of people. Thanks. I had the privilege of being in Denny's cohort, uh, which was the first online East cohort we did in year two, I think, yes. and uh, walked through that process. I had just come uh, to First Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, as a senior pastor and, and walking through, a, at that time, 185, 184-year-old church and trying to come in and change culture and uh, walking with this group of people who surrounded me and encouraged me and taught me. And when I learned the process and the discipleship gospel, it really gave me fuel for the fire. Because we as Americans, I don't know if we have non-Americans in the room, but we as Americans don't do monarchy well, do we? Um, sometimes we don't do democracy very well either, but we don't do monarchy well. And so to come before your church and say, I want you to follow a king, pushes in back in the face of individual rights, right? Until you read Galatians 5, where Paul talks about freedom. And that true freedom is keeping in step with the spirit, the spirit of the king that dwells in believers, right? And so when you can take the gospel and to say it's much bigger than those four points or that that plan of salvation, but it's this bigger, global, eternal thing that involves more than just making a decision, but really following a king, it gives you purpose. And one thing that I found by walking through the Bonhoeffer Project and then taking it back to the local church is that the majority of my members had no purpose in their Christianity. They, may, they pray to prayer, they're in the church, they're in their social club, they like their track on Sunday morning, but beyond that, there's no eternal purpose in their life. And so we ended up managing God's people instead of leading them. And what the Bonhoeffer Project allowed me to do as a local pastor is to take a bigger vision of who we're supposed to be individually and as the body of Christ and implement that in a local church setting and have impact around the world. So this is invaluable, folks. The process, and again, as Denny said, this is not plug and play. It's not take our five points and go do it in your context because I guarantee what can happen in Wisconsin is not the same thing that happens in Georgia. Two different cultures, right? Y'all have cold, right? <laughs> we don't get that a lot, all right? So you have to understand your context. But taking the idea of this discipleship gospel, placing it in there, and walking with a group of people, like Cindy said, that can encourage you. And here's one thing I've found, and I have one of my cohort members from this year. I've been a cohort leader for two years now. One of the benefits is that you just get to rub up against one another. And that friction, that tension, becomes a real positive thing because it's formative in your life. 
and it helps you lead better in the context of local church. Jim, so why did you go with us anyway? Why did you go through it? I think a couple reasons. Number one, I wanted uh, validation and clarification that we were doing the right thing. And so to get a group of people together and to bounce that off of instead of, okay, pastor, we'll go that way or, uh, all right, what? But these guys actually in a critical relationship, evaluating every piece of our plan as we move downstream to say, yes, this does fit, this will work, report back on this. That was critical for me. And then I got my discipleship pastor in my next cohort. And so I started having my team walk through this process as well. So this isn't the senior pastor just driving it, though I was from a vision standpoint. It's everybody on my team, and we have seven pastors on our team. It's everybody on our team being on the same page. That changes a culture. And as a result, same language, same vision, same direction. And then people, when we started to hear the people's language change, when we started to see them investing in others, and this is key for our church, when we saw people excited actually about bringing their friends to our church because what God was doing there through all of this, it changed the culture of our uh, church. Everywhere, everywhere I have the privilege of sharing this message, I use this image. Do you all know what this is? A relay baton. And on this one, as the other ones that I, that I use, uh, you ever heard of 2 Timothy 2? Two, two? It's engraved on this baton. And I remind them that the treasure of the gospel, which is what Paul says that God has entrusted us with, not only Paul, not only Timothy, but all of us as, as followers of Jesus, he's entrusted us with this treasure of the gospel. And he's entrusted it to us to pass it along, correct? It didn't, it came to us on its way to someone else. And once, once our people realize that God has, has entrusted them with this treasure of the gospel and that they are to guard it, not hide it, but guard it, protect its purity, keep it from being contaminated. As they live out their life and as they pass it on to others, that's why he's called us. And so my prayer is for all of us, regardless of your ministry context and regardless of whether you're, you're going to enter into a cohort or not, that you'll take seriously this mandate that Jesus has given all of us. And he's modeled it beautifully. Because life is too short. People are too precious. The, the kingdom of gospel is way too valuable. For us to for us to play church and ignore the Great Commission. Amen. So I pray that uh, through these workshops, through these breakouts, and through what uh, you've heard here, uh, it will make an incredible difference uh, in your lives from here on out. And hopefully you'll discover some more squares as you go along the way. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. The message you just heard was from the Bonhoeffer Project and their track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Download a free ebook primer for Bill Hull and Ben Sobel's book, The Discipleship Gospel, by going to discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.